Well, I'm going to take a little break from our Sermon on the Mount series, Discipleship series, and um, I'm going to do this month of June, um, partly because we're doing uh, the, the Little Mermaid camp, uh, I mean, the Shine camp. And as you might know, um, that's not just to teach fine art. It's an opportunity to share the gospel and share more about what it means to be a Christian uh, with the the children who come and also with their families and even the people that come um, throughout the, uh, I mean, to the performances, you know, as, you know, I'm pretty sure in those two or three days of those performances, there are more people on this campus than at any other two or three days throughout the year, significantly more. And many of them have, have never been to a church building other than perhaps for a wedding and things like that. And that's one of the reasons I just, want to encourage you to, um, to be a part. You know, God is bringing people to you. Some people are like, oh, I don't see non-Christians. I don't have a chance to connect. Well, God's bringing them right here. And if you want to figure out how you can help, and part of helping is just being able to hang out with some of the people who come. You know, talk to, talk to Cheryl about it. Throughout the four weeks, every day, they're going to get a... a, a a devotion, a time together, 15 minutes, partly we're talking about Christianity and, and looking for the, the themes that are in the, the story that they're doing, um, things that maybe are in the story that aren't Christian, that need to be pointed out, this is not Christian, and other things that are. Um, but it's these children who are going to be engaged and really wanting to know and understand um, you know, this the musical and the parts they might be playing and the story, and it's a chance to share the gospel. You know, and I really just, when I think about it, I just have like one complaint about our, our Shine summer program, and that's that, you know, I've never gotten a part. You know, I've, uh, you know, it's, I mean, they did Annie Jr. for goodness sakes. I mean, look at me. I'm clearly made for a certain part in Annie Jr., um, Suzuko, I don't know. So, you know, every year I debate, you know, should I, should I audition or not? Uh, will they give me a fair shake? Um, I'm not sure. I'm working on some songs, and I may be trying out. Um, but, you know, I've done some character research because, um, you know, in case I do audition, I want to make sure I understand. So I, I read the, the actual Little Mermaid story. Not the one, the Disney version, not the cleaned up version, um, but the story that was written by uh, Hans Christian Andersen. And that story is um, it's kind of interesting. As you might suspect, it's kind of like what Disney shows, but it's very, very different. There's, um, in fact, some significant differences. Um, and especially how, how everything ends. But where they both start is they both start with this girl, this mermaid, who's very dissatisfied with what she's been given. In fact, the way that Hans Christian Andersen tells the story, it's what her father provided. Her pro father provided this undersea world, and it's a wonderful world. It's, you know, full of other mermaids and mermen, I guess you might call them. And there's, there's all kind of things to, to do. 
It's wondrous. They even get to go visit to, uh, you know, above the sea and on to land. They get to visit. And it's this, this good place, this good world. But for some reason, it's not good enough. Not for this one little mermaid. And I started to think about how in that play, in that part of the story, you, you get this idea of, of um, that's very consistent with what we find in the Bible. That God creates this world for us. And he creates it, and, he, and it's good. It's a good world. But it's not good enough for us. For some reason, we're not satisfied, and we want something more. And we're, we're kind of caught up in that, you know, there's the, the little, I think there was a debate whether he was a crab or a lobster, Sebastian. And in the, you know, he always, sing, he always says, the seaweed is always greener on someone else's plate, right? That we're always looking at the thing we don't have and thinking it's better than the thing that we have. You know, Ariel sings the song, up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun. Such a wonderful place, so much better than where I am. And that's what we find. We find a similar story in the Bible. And we're gonna read that story today. This world that God made good he made it good. He calls it good. That's his own judgment of his own work. It is good. And he's not talking about good in terms of, you know, um, back in the day when uh, they used to have this store called Sears. Some of you might remember that. I'm not sure they are around anymore. But if you went to Sears, you would see they would have their TVs, their stereos, etc., And then they would have them rated good, better, best. So a lot of people think good, and they go, well, yeah, he made a good world. But, you know, I went to Sears, and there was good world, better world, best world. No, that's not what good means here. It means best. He made it the best. He made it perfect. Is good. And this creation story that we're going to read, it was told to the ancient Israelites. And it was retold, and it was eventually written down. And what this story was telling them is that it was helping them understand who God is. It was, under, it was helping them understand why he created everything, and even why he created them. And it, helps, it was helping them realize why they should worship him. But there's another part of it, something we sometimes forget. Because it's not just, oh, God made all this stuff, we're thankful. It was also to help them understand how they should live. How they should live. If they want to live in the best way possible, the story of Adam and Eve, that's what it was for. 
And so we, we, we want to look at this. We want to remind ourselves. We want to remind ourselves of what the Father has provided for us. And the first thing that we read when we go to Genesis chapter 2, right before the passage that I'm going to focus on today, you get that wonderful story about how God forms Adam, and then he, he breathes life into him. He breathes life into him. What is this telling us? What has God provided for us? Well, he's provided everything. He's provided our very existence. He's, he's provided our consciousness, our self-awareness. He's provided our soul. This breathing of life is not simply physical life. We're going to see a similar story told in, in, um, in the Gospel of John. After Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he's, he's there hanging out with the apostles, and it says he, he breathes the Spirit into them. This is what God gives us. You know, all of this is not possible. You're, my ability to speak to you, your ability to understand, it's, it's not possible unless God provides. If we didn't have these abilities, if we didn't have these this, this, this ideas and the abilities of even self-awareness, it'd be like I'm just talking to a room of just the pews. But he gives us this. He gives us life. But he does more. He does more. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What I wanted to look at is that first part, like kind of right in the middle, where it says that the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. What this is telling us is that God didn't just, provided, didn't just provide what Adam needed. He, did, he went beyond what, they need, what he needed. It says, every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Pleasant to the sight. It's important. We kind of run over that. We kind of miss that on the rush towards food. But it's this, this there in that story that says, you know, God didn't just give the stuff we need. And we talked about last week, what do we need? Air, food, water. He didn't just provide those things. He provides those things. But he, he went beyond that. Things that we might not think we need physically. Which is telling you something about who God is. And it's telling us something about who he wants us to be. It was pleasing to the sight Pleasing to the sight. God cared about how things looked. He cared about beauty. 
You know, I, I'm going to admit to you, when I go to eat, I don't care what the food looks like. Some of you might, I don't. And so, you know, getting married to my wife, and even before that, we were dating, she's trying to provide some culture to me. Because I used to evaluate restaurants based on how much food they served and how cheap it was, right? Two most important things when it came to food as a young man. But then, all of a sudden, it was about ambiance or presentation, you know? You go to these, you know, a lot of these Japanese restaurants, and they, they do all this elaborate setup to make it look pleasing. I just want to eat it. Don't really care what it looks like. But I understand that beyond my food, that I do care about a lot of other things what a lot of other things look like. And it's because it's how God has made us. He's made us, if we want to fully understand what it means to follow God, if we want to fully understand what it means to be made in his image, then we, we should know the value of beauty. Things that are pleasing. It's not just a life of function you know, I don't know when, you know, this church was built, I think, in the 60s or 50s or 60s, but somewhere around the 70s or 80s, a lot of Christian um, you know, churches kind of got taken over by function. You know, and so if you go to churches that were built in that time, buildings that were built in that time, they're basically just boxes. If you go to university campuses, that did a lot of building during that time. A lot of times they're just boxes, just big boxes, and they're very functional. You know, nice little rectangles, and everything is set up that way. Not pleasing at all to look at. Fortunately, in the last 20, 25 years, there's been kind of a recovery that, you know, part of worship is not just being in a box. And yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, when um, we bought our house on the, on the mainland, uh, you know, they had, you know, the, what they call cathedral ceilings. You know what I think cathedral ceilings are? Higher electric bills. That's what I think. It's like wasted space. That's what I think. Because I maybe didn't really appreciate the fact of that feeling, that open feeling, what it looked like. But God cares more than just what we need. Yes, it is food, but the trees are pleasant to the sight. They're beautiful. And the food is, from what we can see, it's good for food. And it seems to be not just nutritious, but it also seemed that it tasted good. You see, God didn't have to make food taste good. He didn't have to make it look good, but he did. He doesn't just provide what we need. He provides more than we need. I'm going to read a little bit more. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
uh, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives us life. He gives us our very consciousness, everything about us. We're not just a tree. We're not just an animal. Something more. He gives us what we need, but he gives us more than what we need because it's part of who we are. And here God provides instructions, instructions to protect us. I want to make it hard, you know, a harder word. You can say he provides commandments. He provides directions. He cares enough about, about Adam and Eve that he tells them, it's what you need to do. It's what you shouldn't do. And again, what is this establishing when this story was told several thousand years ago? It's establishing that God, when God says something, he's not just arbitrarily making things up. He's not the capricious gods that you might have found among the other peoples of that time. That he's saying things because he cares and he doesn't want you to die. In fact, it's more than that. He wants you to live the best way possible. He provides the best, and then he gives instructions, and he wants us to live the best way possible. It's not just the safest, but it is safe. It's the most fulfilling. It's why we were created. If you have a hammer, for example, right? You have a hammer, and your hammer has some consciousness and can talk. And your hammer likes to do what hammers do and tells you. But you have decided you're not going to use your hammer that way. You know, your door keeps closing, so you use your hammer as a doorstop. Every time you walk by that hammer as a doorstop, hammer's going to be complaining. Or maybe just sighing. Oh, there he goes again. If you gave the hammer an opportunity to do what the hammer was created to do, hammer would be happy would be fulfilled, would be satisfied. You see, we get distracted. We get confused. We distort why God created us. What is the most fulfilling thing? And we chase after all these other things, and, and they have some temporary satisfaction, but they're ultimately, they, they don't provide they don't provide, they don't meet that, that need because it's not who we were created to be. We weren't created to be doorstops. We are created to be something more. But we live our whole lives in, in another way, ignoring the instructions that we have. Somebody asked me this week, going through a hard time, and, and said, you know, 
you know, what do you do when, you know, you're going through a hard time and you, um, you want to stop thinking about it because it doesn't feel good to think about it, but, um, but you can't. And I told him, I, I help others. I try to help others. I try to serve others. If I, if I have pain in my life that I want to, I, I don't want to have to, you know, just dwell upon, I help others. And why do I do that? Do I do that because I've found some secret to life? No, it's because it's what the Bible tells me to do. The Bible tells me to be a servant. It's not to be a servant just to be a servant. It is helpful to serve others and help others. It is good to advance the kingdom through service, but it's also the best way to live because, you see, when we're actually serving others, then we stop turning our attention to ourselves so much. The more we focus just on ourselves, the more we think our world is small, the bigger our problems are. But when we realize the world is bigger, when we realize there's others to serve and others to help, it gives value to our lives. And it helps us put our problems in perspective. God gives us the directions, the best way to live. He gives us his word, the Bible, that has those instructions in them much more extensively than what we find in the garden. But we treat the Bible like we can pick and choose. We're just going to pick and choose the parts that we want. You know, it's, it's like if you went to the doctor and you had a serious problem and the doctor said, you need to do these six things. If you do these six things, you're going to get better. And you look at those six things and you tell the doctor, I only want to do three of them, okay? Is that okay? Can I just do three? The doctor is a good doctor. The doctor is going to say, no, you have to do all six if you want to get better. But I only want to do three. Three of them are convenient. Three of them are comfortable. Three of them I'm used to. Three of them I'm familiar with. I don't want to do the others. And that's how we sometimes treat God's word. We, we want to pick and choose. And I would like to blame the millennials because, you know, when you blame millennials, it's, you know, it's like, seems to be the thing everybody's doing. But the millennials learned it from their parents. And their parents learned it from their grandparents. What am I talking about? I'm going to customize Christianity. I'm going to recreate it, take out the most important parts, and leave the rest behind. Millennials are just, they're just more honest about it. There's a lot of millennials who think, I don't have to come to a worship service. I don't have to gather with other Christians in a, in a church setting because, you know, I have my Christian relationships outside. And we look at them and go, tusk, tusk. 
You are not being faithful. But how many of us have cut out, avoided, ignored so many things of what it means to be a Christian? They're just following our example. We either did it and didn't know we were doing it, or we did it and we hit it. You know, how many of us have, have made it part of our very DNA to look for the most needy person and to try to help them? And I'm not talking about the needy person in all of Hawaii. I'm talking about the neediest person right here. How many of us have made Christianity about keeping each other at a safe but cordial distance? but not about embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I always invite people to come and tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where what I'm telling you the Bible says Christians are called to be is not what I'm saying. How many of us are so proud that we will not sing songs we will refuse to sing songs. We will refuse to learn songs. Whether, whether they're old or whether they're new, it doesn't matter. We will refuse to do it. We will sit there like a lump and seal our lips and not even try. You know that first song we sang today, we're saying, worthy, 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 worthy. You know, some people are like, you know, why are we saying worthy like three times? I'm sorry, but you're going to be really upset in heaven. Because they're going to be saying, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, for thousands of years. And what are you going to be over there? Ah, can't wait till they're done. Is that what you're going to do? Yeah, but they're not going to use a guitar, right? Because they only got pianos in heaven. We do it. We take God's instructions, we pick and choose, we take the parts we like, we leave out the other parts. Even though this is really dangerous, because if you don't interpret scripture correctly, it can cause some problems. But I would challenge you to do what I did several years ago, a few decades ago actually. Keep doing it today. I said, God, I'm going to read and study your word from beginning to end with fresh eyes. I'm going to say, what does your word say? And help me accept that to be the truth. Not what I've been, been told, not what I have accommodated so that I don't have to confront uncomfortable things that, I, that are in my life. But God, Help me to know. And you know, when you first start doing it, it's, it, it doesn't work so well because you still are reinterpreting everything to, to keep making you feel comfortable. But if you're honest with yourself, you're honest with God, you keep studying, you keep reading, you keep searching, I started to realize, okay, I'm getting there now. 
Because the things I believe the Bible is teaching me make me scared. Make me realize what I have to change and what I have to give up. Are going to lead to a lot of awkward situations. Going to pull me out of my comfort. I'm like, okay, good. That's what I need. That's what we need. We need to take the whole counsel of God. And especially those parts that are going to just take a sledgehammer to those frozen parts of our lives that we have, we have decided to close off. And yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it can be awkward. But you have to get over this thing that even if you don't say it, a lot of us think, and we just think like, ah, this is who I am. This is what I do. I believe you. It is who you are. It is what you do. But as a Christian, it's not about who we are. It's about who we are becoming. And we should always be becoming more and more like Christ. To do that, we have to take the whole counsel. Jesus is saying this in the New Testament, echoing this. He's telling us, this is the best way, not just you individual person can live, but the best way all of you can live together. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the, to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now this is proof, biblical theological proof, that at least in God's original design, dogs are not man's best friend. Okay. People, if this was in Texas, some people would walk out at this moment because I've said blasphemy. But truth is, there's no companion in that that's a better companion than what God is going to create. But before we talk about that, we need to see something else God is doing here. God is providing work. He's providing work. He's saying, Adam, yeah, it's this awesome garden. And frankly, there's no one else to talk to. And I could give everything in here names. I could tell you the names. And plus, what good are names if you're by yourself? You can be like, hey, hey, uh, um, you know, chubby thing over there that oinks. And you, you know, you know slithering thingy. Or you jumping around in the trees, or he could have. There's no one to say, but it's a job. It's given a job. What is this telling us? It's telling us that God made us to work. I don't believe heaven is a place where you you rest forever. 
I think it's a place where we get to work, and I look forward to it. I think we've, we've, we've made something of work in our society. We've made something of work in, 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 our, in, in our fallen world. Something that it was never made to be. That's why we hate work sometimes. That's why we sometimes think work is this necessary evil or work is, an, is a means to an end, but work itself is just work. Work is about money, or maybe it's about you know, fulfillment, maybe it's about power. Maybe for a little while, work is about happiness or work is fun. Maybe it's for providing for your family. But what is this all saying? What's this all saying is that if I didn't need money, if I could be happy in other ways, or if the fun wears off at work, or if I don't have to provide for a family, work is optional. From what I can tell, God didn't pay Adam to name the animals. Think about that. If he copyrighted all those names, how rich Adam would be right now. Pretty amazing. But he doesn't. He doesn't pay him. He doesn't compensate him. He just says, do it. I designed you to work. I remember talking to one of my uncles once, and he's already retired, and he's just like, oh, Matt, all those years I worked, worth it now. Worth it now, because I've retired. I thinking, that's weird to me. Even back then, it was weird. Because I'm not working to retire. I'm not working just to make money. And if we understand what the Bible tells us about work and why God provided work, it's because we need to see work as God-given and that it is something that is done unto God. Paul writes about this. He talks to 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 the servants and slaves, and he says, serve them, serve your master as though unto God. It's it's a gift. You imagine how different our mindsets would be to things like college or vocational training or everything else if if we believed that that was a gift that God had given to us so that we might serve him and glorify him. How when we're going through all those, those tedious and mundane things, when, 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 we're, when we're having a hard time, when we're struggling, how that pushes us through because there's a greater cause than just making money. Because I'm going to tell you something that millennials have figured out, and it makes them smarter than us. You don't got to go to college to make a lot of money. That's what we've been telling them. That's what was told to me. Like we talked about last week, should that even be the reason you go to college in the first place? Just to make a lot of money. If it's just about making money, if it's just about being happy, if it's just about providing for your family, well, a lot of things. But if you view your work as given to you by God, and that God is somehow going to use your work to further his kingdom? Oh man. Takes on a whole new meaning. 
If you realize, even if your specific job, you might think like, you know, I you know, put the cap on the toothpaste. That's my job, right? It's from Willy Wonka, right? Put the cap on the toothpaste. How is that serving God? Maybe not. Maybe putting the cap on the toothpaste isn't serving God in the toothpaste factory. But you know what is? Your attitude, the way that you do it, the spirit that you have when you do it, what you do when the other toothpaste cap putter honors start complaining about the assistant manager in charge of toothpaste cap putter honors, and talking about how she's just so smug and I can't stand her and you just jump right in, or you don't. You don't. You show love and you show Christ even in that situation. If you think about going to work is, and the co-workers is about building relationships and it's not about, okay, the first day of work I'm going to go uh, share the gospel with everybody in my office. No. But you realize every day you're in that office, every day you're at that place, you are, you are shining light. Oh, man. It's going to change how you approach work. It's going to change what you do when there's hard times, when there's conflict. We don't work because we have to. It's because we're made to work. You can always see the athlete, the professional athlete, that really it just is super competitive and loves the sport loves what they're doing, and the ones that are kind of love it, but are really enjoying the money. Maybe they had a three-year contract. They're in the third year. They know after this year, I'm going to have to renegotiate a new contract. They have the best year. The best year. They get this big contract. Guess what happens in the first year of the new contract? Sometimes their worst year. The world's idea is work so that you can have stuff. Work so you can free up your time. Work so you can get the things you want. But God says, no, work is a gift. I designed you to work. I designed you to help and serve others. Do it. You know, I don't know how many times I've ever done this. I probably never. So don't feel bad if you haven't either. But how many times, when if you maybe wanted a promotion or a raise, that your prayer is, God, I, I, I want this so that I can bless more people, so that I can give more to people in need. And God, if I don't get it, I'm still going to try to find a way to meet people's needs. But this would really help. Or how much of it is, I want the raise because I deserve it. I want the raise so that, you know, I can get a nicer house or pay my bills. Again, nothing wrong with those things. But there's something not fully right about it. 
Work is a gift. And the last thing we see the Father provides for us says, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What does God provide here? He provides relationships. He provides relationships. He created us for healthy, loving relationships. He, provi he, he provided these relationships because he created us in a way that, that he knows and believes and designed us so that, we, that when we work together, we can do far more than when we work on our own. That the value of, of working together is not simply working together, but there's an, there's an enriching part of life. There's an enriching part of life. There's something about all this other stuff that comes comes out more strongly, this idea of, of giving us more than we need and what life is and, and even work. It comes out even more when we, when we have relationships, healthy relationships. We were never meant to be alone. It's one of the favorite strategies of Satan is that when you sin or when you have a hard time is that you want to isolate yourself more and more and more and more. He gets you alone. He can do a lot of damage. No, we were called to be in healthy relationships together. And God provides us for that. God provides that for us. It's one of the reasons I keep talking about why the mark of our church, of a healthy church, is reconciliation. Because it needs to be part of who we are, that we are always moving to healthier, more positive relationships with one another. We should never feel that we've reached it and we can stop. Always move. Always grow. God made us that way. He provides this for us. And I think when we think about what God provides, you know, I think a lot of us go, yeah, okay, I knew all this. Thanks, Pastor. This one was pretty, pretty good. It's all in my, you know had that all in my head, that's good. Well, let me ask you a question. If you believe God provides all of this, what is the general feeling of your life? What is your general feeling towards life? Are you grateful? Do you have incredible gratitude for all that God provides? And again, I'm not talking about you know, material blessings, I'm talking about what he's provided here. Is it, are you grateful? Or you have a more of a grumbling spirit? Grumbling spirit is always looking at what we don't have. What God didn't do for us. See, we go back to the little mermaid. And the little mermaid was given everything. If you read that story, the Hans Christian Andersen story, again, she's, she's put in this, this beautiful place. She even has a job. 
She has sisters. She has her grandmother who loves her, her father who loves her, everything. She's not a prisoner. She can come and she can go. She has everything. She has everything but gratitude. I think what sometimes makes us want to go to greener pastures, at least what we think are greener pastures, is because we look, we look at the negative, we look at what we don't have, and we grumble about it instead of being grateful. You know that grass is always greener phrase. I used to say this. It's kind of the same thing, but it's the opposite. It's not the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. It's the grass is always browner on my side of the fence. Right? Grass is always browner. I'm only looking at what my problems are. I'm not looking at the blessings. How do we look at that? You see, even in a fallen, broken world, even when we are going through tragedy, even when we're going through dark times, God provides. And if we have these eyes of gratitude, we'll see it. It doesn't take the tragedy away. It doesn't take the pain away. But it reminds us that the God who provided then still provides now. And the second question is this. If you say, I got this, I got this, I understand all this, then I ask you this question, what are you doing with what God has provided? God doesn't just provide just for yourself. He doesn't just provide for you and your family. He provides so that you might do his kingdom work. What are you doing with what God has provided? 